the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who remembers the TV series Dragnet. It's a little dangerous alluding to any TV program before the early 90s because it's the quickest way to convince everybody that you're really quite irrelevant. (laughs) But I remember Dragnet, and I need to explain to you why. You see, growing up in New Zealand, we didn't get television until 1960. And so the TV programs that many of you grew up with in the 50s and the 60s I got to see in the 70s and the 80s. So I remember Dragnet, not because I'm so old, but just because that's, that's the way it worked. What I remember about the hero from Dragnet, Joe Friday, his hard-bitten detective, he used to implore his female witnesses He used to say, give me the facts, ma'am. Just give me the facts. Seems an incredibly sexist thing to say today. (laughs) But it got me to thinking about, so what are the facts? Well, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, which had been welded together by his father David out of the twelve tribes of Israel, split into two, with a northern kingdom, its capital at Samaria, and a southern kingdom with its capital at Judah, uh, at Jerusalem. In 721, the Assyrian army captured the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed Samaria, taking the king and the nobles and the priests into captivity. And unlike the later captivity in Babylon, these people did not return. And so what was left in the northern kingdom of Israel was really just the rude peasantry And over time, they intermarried with the peoples around them to form the Samaritans that we hear about a lot in Jesus' day. The virtual destruction of Israel left the southern kingdom of Judah to fend for itself within a whirlwind of Near Eastern kingdoms. And at the time of Samaria's fall, There existed in Judah two kings, Ahaz and his son Hezekiah, and they ruled as co-regents, and Judah continued to survive as a vassal state, paying enormous tribute to Sennacherib, who was the king of the Assyrian Empire. And in 715... Following the death of Ahaz, Hezekiah became the sole regent. And he initiated a widespread religious reform which involved the destruction of the idols. He captured the Philistine-occupied territory of the Negev and he formed alliances with Ashkelon and with Egypt and thereby tempted 
the wrath of Assyria. So Sennacherib didn't waste any time in invading Judah and destroying the cities of Judah and laying siege to the capital of Jerusalem. And it's in that political context that the prophet Isaiah proclaims his extraordinary vision of the future. When out of the ruined stump of Jesse, of David's kingdom, will spring a new shoot. And the new shoot is an allusion to the Messiah, the promised one, and he will rise up and restore the fortunes of Israel. And in Isaiah's vision last week, we heard that swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And in the midst of this impending crisis and potential destruction, Isaiah dreams of improbable things. And in our first reading today, we hear the next part of Isaiah's dream. He envisions the wolf lying down with the lamb and the leopard with the kid and the calf and the lion and the fatling feeding together and all of this being led by a little child. And what seems most startling to me, another of the facts, as Joe Friday would have it, is that Isaiah's picture of the Messiah is not of a great warrior, but of the most fragile of all of God's creation, a little human child. And it's no wonder that the early Christians looked back to this prophecy and identified its reference to Jesus, a powerful corroboration that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God. And last week I noted that Advent invites us to bold expectation, diligent preparation, and courageous and patient waiting. I return to the reference that I made last week to the great theologian Paul Tillich, who said, if we wait in hope and patience, the power of that for which we wait is already effective within us. And those who wait in an ultimate sense are not that far from that for which they wait. And Tillich's comment is an important message for us. For we are a people who no longer believe that we should wait for anything. 
the sidesman usher at eight o'clock, was sharing with me after the Eucharist his distress at the sight of all his neighbors with their Christmas trees and their Christmas lights. As if somehow Christmas is already here. We have a powerful need for immediate gratification. And consequently, we limit our dreams. Our dreams are always too small, too conditioned by what is so-called reality. And in my view, one of the characteristics of our current period of time is that we have lost the courage to dream, seeming to prefer the accommodation with a culture that is increasingly afraid. So if we only expect what is already familiar to us, then we risk bringing about a future that is simply a projection of the past. An expectation by its very nature must be of things that seem to us from our present perspective improbable, if not impossible. Advent reminds us that we must try to live life with more than an expectation of the future as a projection of the past, more than a projection of what we consider to be possible. We need to break free of the limitations of our past. And in other words, expectation is dreaming beyond what Joe Friday would recognize as the facts. And so what is it that we are waiting for? We are part of a transgenerational vision, which is the dream of the coming of the kingdom of God. It's a vision that in each generation remains as authentic, valid, and true as it has ever been. And yet we in our generation cannot just accept the interpretation of the vision of a previous generation. We must engage with the Christian vision in order to unlock its truth for the particularity of our own time and place. And our Christian vision emerges out of the story of Jesus as the Messiah. This story sets the agenda for our present time where we must work tirelessly in the service of the kingdom. And the difficult thing about the kingdom is that it plays with our sense of time. We like to divide things into the past, the present, and the future. But the kingdom doesn't work like that. The significance of the kingdom is that it is both here right now and yet still 
to come. And in Matthew's Gospel that we heard this morning, he introduces us to the character of John the Baptist. John emerges in time and space within the unfolding transgenerational vision. In time and space, John is known to us most popularly as the cousin of Jesus. In the transgenerational vision, however, John symbolizes the return of the prophet Elijah, whom it was believed had to appear first to announce the coming of the Messiah. John, in time and place, the cousin of Jesus, now steps into Isaiah's vision as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. A regular sermon blogger on our week-by-week texts called Bruce Eppley brings out the commonality that links Isaiah's vision, John's vision, and ours. When he writes, John dreamed of a peaceable realm, and so do we. He never lived to see its full embodiment, but he planted the seeds that enabled Jesus to move forward as its messenger and embodiment. John is Advent personified. He embodies the fierce urgency of the now, but not yet. He is impatient with our foolishness and our sin, and he wants us to be better. And as the Advent messenger, he knows that salvation occurs through the transformation of one person at a time. This very moment is the right time for us to let go of the past, turn away from our half-heartedness and complicity with injustice, and find a new pathway to God's peaceable kingdom. One step, one breath at a time. This great transgenerational vision that has a past stretching back to the prophet Isaiah and the other great prophets of Israel and beyond them into the primal Genesis narratives of creation. This long transgenerational vision becomes our Christian vision when it finds its anchor point in the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus as Messiah. In Christ, God came to dwell within the conditions of the creation. In Christ, God acted once and for all. Yet once and for all is clearly not realized in one fell swoop. I looked up the meaning of the phrase one foul swoop. Maybe 
like you, I use it a lot, and I'm never quite sure exactly what it means. But it means to accomplish everything that needs to be done at the same time and in the same moment. Clearly, the kingdom of God is not being accomplished in one fell swoop. It is here, and yet its full meaning and significance is only unfolding over time. And as we expect, our expectations must be kingdom-shaped. The expectations of the kingdom are things like love and justice, inclusion, community. Our expectations have to be molded by the coming of the kingdom. And we will know that our expectations are so molded when they appear to be to us from our narrow perspective in time and place. When they appear to us to be improbable, if not impossible. The kingdom provides the courage and the motivation to move beyond the limitations of our imaginations that are so conditioned by the past. And in this transgenerational vision, there is a 21st century chapter. In our time, the story of the unfolding of the kingdom continues. And we have a crucial role to play. Isaiah dreamed of a time when under the leadership of the most vulnerable and fragile of all God's creatures, the nursing human child, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And John the Baptist understood that the kingdom comes with a fierce urgency. And for you and me, there is no time to waste. And we dream our way forward, guided by the expectations of the kingdom, unfolding in our midst through our welcome of it. And to welcome the kingdom means turning away from half-heartedness and complicity with injustice and finding a new pathway to God's peaceable kingdom, one step, one breath at a time. Paul Tillich reminds us, if we wait with patience, the power for what we wait for is already effective within us. And another great figure for me, the great 20th century psychologist Alice Miller, echoes Tillich when she says, we are who we have been waiting for. 
here again this playing with time. We are already who we have been waiting for. And I can't end before paraphrasing T.S. Eliot. That which we hope and long for is made real only in the waiting. That which we hope and long for is made real only in the waiting. And so expecting and preparing and waiting. This is our work in our own time to which the season of Advent calls us. Amen.